On the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. And now abide faith, hope, and politics. These three. But the greatest of these is politics. Or at least so it seems. In the 21st century, the smothering influence of ideological politics is everywhere evident. It has all too evidently wrested control of every academic discipline, of every cultural trend, of every intellectual impulse, even of every religious revival in our time. From woke social justice and critical race theory to pluralism and multiculturalism, from liberalism and progressivism to monopolism and socialism, the sordid record of the past two generations has proven to be an epic of movements beguiled by the temporal seductions of ideological politics. Nearly every question, every issue, every social dilemma has been and continues to be translated into legal, juridical, or mechanical terms. They are supplied with bureaucratic, mathematical, or systemic solutions. If there is something wrong with the economy, then the government must fix it. If family values are absent, then the government must supply them. If health care provision is inefficient, then the government must rectify the situation. If education is in disarray, then the government must reorder the system. Whatever the problem, it seems that government is the solution. Virtually all social historians agree that This is indeed the most distinctive aspect of our age, the subsuming of all other concerns to the rise of political mass movements based upon closed-universe, secular, and millenarian intellectual systems. This is undoubtedly the age of ideology. The name of the ideological game is power. With all the cool detachment of wintry witchery, every other consideration is relegated to a piratical extremism or a comical humbug. G.K. Chesterton observed, There is, as a ruling element in modern life, a blind and asinine appetite for mere power. There is a spirit abroad. Among the nations of the earth, which drives men incessantly on to destroy what they cannot understand and to capture what they cannot enjoy. According to Eric Vogelin, this awful tendency is essentially the politics of spiritual revolt. It is, he says, a kind of psychic disorientation, a metastic faith, a modern Prometheanism, a secular Perusianism, or perhaps most accurately, a dominion of pneumopathological consciousness. In short, ideological politics is little more than a revived Gnosticism.
It is an abiding fundamentalist humanism rooted in the naked politicalization of every detail of life. Ideological consciousness is typified by a turning away from the transcendent ground in revolt against the tension of contingent existence. In the modern era, this revolt has taken many forms, all of which are expressive of dissatisfaction with the degree of certainty afforded by faith, trust, and hope as sources of knowledge and existential orientation. The great ideologies seek to displace Christian revelation by misplacing the transcendent ground within an imminent hierarchy of being, identifying the essence of human existence as the productive relations, historical progress, racial compensation, libidinous drives, scientific rationality, or the will to power dominate. Within the intellectual systems constructed around these misplacements of the ground, humanity appears as autonomous, self-created, a species capable of assuming control of its destiny through the self-conscious application of new forms of knowledge. In short, ideological politics is little more than this revived Gnosticism, uh, rooted in naked politicalization of everything. It is a worldview as thorough and dominating in our time as was the faith during the epoch of Christendom. Ideology is the modern ecology. It is the landscape that we see, the sound that we hear, the food that we eat, the air, the air that we breathe. It is utter madness, a madness that leads to a kind of brazen denial of basic reality. As Chesterton sagely prophesied, we shall soon be in a world in which a man may be howled down for saying that two and two make four, in which people will persecute the heresy of calling a triangle a three-sided figure and hang a man for maddening a mob with his news that the grass is green. Madness, indeed. According to Alexander Solzhenitsyn, ideology is what gives evil doing its long-sought-for justification and gives the evildoer the necessary steadfastness and determination. Thanks to ideology, our age has been fated to experience evil doing on a scale calculated in the millions. This modern notion is a far cry from the kind of worldview that the American founders and pioneers maintained. They shared a profound distrust of central governments to solve the grave problems that afflicted individuals and communities. They believed in a strong and active civil authority, but only in its proper place. Thus, every brand of statist ideology was abhorred by them. 
Thomas Jefferson warned against the danger of reducing the society to the state or the state to the society. Patrick Henry argued that uh, the contention uh, that civil government should be at its option, able to intrude and exercise control over the family and the household, is a great and pernicious error. Governor Morris insisted that everyday affairs of society should be designed to avoid what he called the interference of the state beyond its competence. In a sense, therefore, ideology represents a paradigm lost. In the minds of the new elite, the dilemmas of the modern age are simply too grave to trust to free markets, free communities, and free institutions. The foundations of this great experiment in liberty are no longer sufficient. Instead, they insist that government must do more. And so it does. More and more and more and more frenetically, madly, destructively more. As a consequence, we have entered into a frightening new experiment in ideological politics, a moment that beckons to those who are still clear-headed enough to engage in both resistance and reformation. I'm George Grant on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. For more information and for resources, go to georgegrant.net or to adoring God. 